True communion with God and his people is connected by and sealed by the blood of the Lamb. That is what we're talking about today. In 1 Corinthians 11, we're going to be finishing up that chapter with another correction aimed at God's people. In this section, we're going to read that the church in Corinth is a place of hypocrisy. One that missed the mark in unity and its equality among the believers there. Now, everybody knows that food connects us, yes? I mean, if we could, we all share the same air, but food connects us in a special way. Like when you go to a wedding, what is there? There's food, right? There's food. When you go to a funeral, what is there? There's food for some weird reason, right? Like, and at a birthday party or almost every other celebration that we have, there is, there is food that we gather around and, and we connect as a family. And, when, and you know, hopefully when we eat dinner in the evening, we sit around the table as a family and we eat the, the things that we rely on God for, the necessity for survival. Like you guys don't brush your teeth together or, or do some of the other things in your life, but you definitely come together to eat. And we're, we're designed that way for that purpose, to grow us together and to bring us unity. Think of a time when somebody shared food with you. Maybe it was like a, a piece of gum or maybe you brought cupcakes to class, right? You felt included. You had none and they had and, and then they shared and there was this equality. There was this unity that happened there. I mean, when we have youth group, every youth group now, we do dinner together, both out of the necessity for kids to be able to enjoy like a good meal per week, but also because it sets the tone and brings us all together. There was a period in time where we didn't do that, where we had stopped uh, doing meals before youth group, and it just, it just was lacking something significant. So the Corinthian church here, in their meetings, in their fellowship, in their eating, they've created cliques and groups and status and money. All these things have separated people from some of their most basic function together, their fellowship. And because of that, it has brought a cord of disunity among them. Now, it seems like a secondary issue that Paul would rebuke them from their conduct at potlucks. But it seems that they have failed to understand their purpose and place, that their needs of their fellow disciple have been robbed by their own selfishness. That one of the very reasons they're meeting is being destroyed by their conduct and the way they're acting. Now, for us to listen to their rebuke is kind of like, you know, when your brother or sister get in trouble and you, like, listen against the wall to kind of hear. But there's something for us to learn from, from their rebuke as well. There's some, there's some discipline for us as well. Even though all of what they are disciplined on may not all directly apply to us, we better listen to learn from their mistakes because we are sure to find that some of their faults are some of our own as well. So Acts 2, that that verse I told you to turn to, Acts 2, verse 42 through 47. And you can read it up here, and you have a Bible below your pew. And if you don't have a Bible, you're either welcome to keep that one, 
or you can find a deacon and uh, and like Beth or Tom or or you can find somebody like Josh or me or uh, Bob and Brian and we'll get you your own Bible as well that you can take home. Um, <laughs> But anyway, uh, Acts chapter 2, verse 42 through 47. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship. Now, who's they? It's the early church. It's the disciples. Not just the 12, but all who have come to believe in Jesus' resurrection. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many signs and wonders performed by the apostles. And then I'll let somebody else read 44 and down. Anybody? All the believers who were together and had everything in common. They, they sold property and possessions to give to everyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. Praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. And if we turn to, um, if we turn to Acts 4, which is my next uh, verse up there. Acts chapter 4, verse 32 and 35. Now what we're going to study today is actually connected to the context right around this here. All the believers were one in heart and mind. Somebody want to read that one for me, please? Somebody new. Or not new, new, but like somebody else besides me and Sue. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own. But they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there all that there were no needy persons among them from time to time those who owned land or houses sold them brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles feet and it was distributed to anyone who had need mm. so we can see this composure this mindset this lifestyle that the early church has and we're going to see in in 1 Corinthians here in just a moment that Equality, unity, and the holiness of what unifies them and us together was really being disregarded. I'm going to systematically share my notes as we read through this time. Then I'm going to share the overall lessons that we can take away from Scripture. um, And then we're going to prepare for communion together. We want to ensure that God's holy sacrifice is honored with reverence that is due to the one who saves. We show this by the way that we remember that sacrifice and the way we treat people. So finally, let's begin. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 17 through 34 is what we're going to go in today. And if you are in Acts right now and you're trying to flip over, you just kind of keep, keep flipping a little past Romans, and you're going to find 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 17 through 34. In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. Ouch, right? I don't have anything nice to say to you. Because when you meet together, like, you're not doing any good. You're actually causing 
problems. You're causing harm. Paul's referencing their gatherings, gatherings, which are frequent. This is like even potentially daily that they're meeting together. Their lives are intertwined and they ate together often in potluck style meetings. And this is how the church functioned because the church is literally the people. So wherever they meet together, that is, that is the church. And they are the church even if they are separate from each other because they're always connected by the body and the blood of Christ. Does that make sense? It's one of those things that the world has a massive misconception on. When you talk of church, you're like, well, I, I hate church. Well, you're saying you hate people is what you're saying. You're not saying a building or anything like that. So the church is literally the people. Verse 18, in the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. And to some extent, I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. Ouch. Like just by your actions, there is a division. And God's people, those obedient to him, are going to be revealed by the negative actions of others. The good and the negative actions are going to divide them and make it clear who belongs to him. Now, I want to jump over. All the verses today that are in green are on the board. Those are going to be supplementary verses. Everything in white is of our main text today. So my, first, so my second supplementary verse here is 1 Corinthians 1.10, which is at the very beginning of this letter to the Corinthians. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say and that there be no divisions among you but that you be perfectly united in mind and in thought. That's a pretty significant, um, unite, like being united together. Like united so much that we think the same way, we act the same way, we have the same goals and motivations in mind, we have the same purpose, we live for the same reason. How essential is our unity? Galatians 5 19 through 24. This is going to build on what we just read in verse 19, that there have to be differences to show us which of who has God's approval here. Galatians 5, 19 through 24. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, and debauchery. Idolatry and witchcraft. Hatred and discord. Jealousy. Fits of rage. Selfish ambition. Dissensions and factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, when we say kingdom of God, you're actually talking about two things at the same time. You're talking about God's rule over his kingdom of his people, and we're talking about the Holy Spirit present, God's presence in the life of his people, the believers. Verse 22, and this is the contrast. This is how we know whether our actions actually line up with what the Holy Spirit is leading us to or whether it's ourselves, our own sinful nature. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there are, there is no law. Those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So that first list, right? They've crucified it. They've killed it. It no longer belongs to them. It doesn't guide them. They don't submit themselves to those ways or become complacent to them. Instead, they live by the Spirit. 
Galatians 5, those two lists, they reveal our natural sinfulness. It points to dissensions and factions specifically. Whereas the fruit of the Spirit is love and forbearance. So Paul's saying to them, just by your actions, you can recognize that you're not following the Spirit in what you're doing. You're following your own sinful flesh. So Galatians 5 is great because it gives clarity so that we can judge the source and the motivations of the way that we and others think and act. Meaning that if we belong to God, then our lives are going to reflect it. We will know they are Christians by our love. Everybody knows that song, right? Well, if you don't, I'm sure somebody could hum it to you or sing it to you. It's one of those ones that most people have by heart. Um, Verse 20 here of our main text shows us the big problem here. So then when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat. For when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat or drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this manner. He has nothing nice to say to them. No encouragement to build them up, but, but just calling them out in this point. You know, in the early church, communion wasn't an isolated event. Like communion wasn't, the, it, was, it was something set apart, but it wasn't something that they, that they did separately in their worship together, in their time together, worship being the entirety of their lives. But in their gathering, like they would, they would gather together and before they eat, they would break bread and they would share it. And then they would go about their potluck or their, or their dinner, their supper together. And then at the end of their dinner together, then they would share the cup of blessing. Interesting, right? Like, why do we do that differently? Probably because it's a little more inconvenient for us, right, to be doing potlucks every week or whatever. But this is how they live. This is how they function. They were so unified in their lives, were intertwined in this way, that they shared food on a regular basis. And so they also shared communion on this regular basis as well. So communion was not an isolated event. Like Jesus and his disciples did, communion, the Lord's Supper, was a meal that was bookended by the breaking of bread at the beginning and the drinking of the cup at the end. It's the real meal in between here that's being abused. First and foremost, they are creating division by making these cool clubs, which is opposite of the whole purpose of gathering. It would be like having a Thanksgiving dinner, but then we just pick like a couple people and they got to go sit at the kids' table. In the other room. Or if you invited somebody over for Thanksgiving and they come over for Thanksgiving and you're like, great. And then you stand up from the table and take your plate and be like, hey, Jerry, you want to go, you know, let's go hang out together. Defeating the whole purpose of meeting together. And then above that, instead of the last shall be first and the first shall be last, they're acting as though I'm going to take whatever I can get. Because I'm the most important. My comfort and how I feel is most important, not the needs of the people. So they're creating these divisions and they're separating themselves. But we need each other. You need the church, you need the body of believers. 
like the rest of the New Testament tells us, right? A hand can't survive on its own, and a hand can't tell the head or the foot that it doesn't need you. It's essential for the survival of the hand to have the rest of the body. And it's, a, it's essential for the hand to work with and need and rely on the rest of the body as well. But the Corinthians have taken what was intended to foster unity and equality, and they have corrupted it to do the opposite. Paul here is really calling them out. He says, you despise the church of God. To hate the church is to hate the people. And to hate the people is really condemning Christ, the people he loved and he gave his life for. You know, I think there's two reasons why we're told over and over and over and over again to love one another. The first and foremost is, is that God created each and every one of us with a love and a care and a gentle compassion. So much that he created us, even while we were still sinners, even in our faults and our failures, and with all of our gifts and all of our blessings, he created each one of us unique, and he created each one of us equal, and he created each one of us his, whether we claim him or not. And the second is why we should love one another is because not only are we created in the image of God to be his, but among believers, the Holy Spirit dwells within us. And if the Holy Spirit dwells within us, how can you hate the temple where the Holy Spirit lives? Hmm. So to have love for one another is this essential command of God because if we love one another then we prove that we love God. And if we don't love one another, then we make it clear that we don't really love God. In Sunday school, we were listening to a sermon about worship, and the pastor mentioned people who say, I love Jesus, but I hate the church. That's like saying to a friend, I really like hanging out with you, but I hate your wife. The one he loves his other half, the one he's unified with. Mm. We really can't do that. So for the Corinthians, one gets hungry and the other drunk. This is in direct opposition to the early church where all believers willingly have everything in common and no one is in need. Those who had vacation houses and property, they sold those properties to care for those in need. So no one was in need among them. Can you see that cults do a way better job of doing this than we do? But this is our purpose, to care for one another with this sacrificial love that does not put ourselves first, but puts the needs of others before ourselves. Because we know that by loving them, we are loving who? God. We're loving Christ. Exactly right. So these people are disregarding the needs of others. And their purpose should have been to seek the common good above their own desires and needs. But this gathering, which is intended to encourage, has instead humiliated those who have nothing. And Paul once again says, I have nothing nice to say. 
which is really interesting because Paul is like the master of the sandwich. You know what the sandwich is, right? Like where you say something really nice and encouraging, then you give some correction and they say something really nice and encouraging together and you put it together and you give it to somebody so that it can be received. But Paul is like, no, you don't get the sandwich. You just, you just get the truth here. Now we come to the portion of scripture that we recite once a month at our abridged communion service. Which if we really wanted to be accurate, we would, it would take place during our potluck, during our, our meeting together um, as we shared food. Verse 23 says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Do, do what in remembrance of me? Break the bread and share it. That's what we're doing in remembrance of him. And who is he giving thanks to? He's giving thanks to the Father. He's giving thanks to God. In the same way, what? After supper... He took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So there's a couple things that are stated in there. One is remembrance. Two is recalling the new covenant that God has made with his people. And three is, is proclaiming his return. This is the function of communion. We remember what Jesus did for us, giving himself in our place, taking the wrath of God, the judgment that we deserve. You know, we don't take communion because we are worthy to take communion of somehow of our own accord or because we're good enough or, or whatever it is. We can take communion because Jesus paid the price He declared us to be his treasure. He declared us to be the one he loves. And through that, he takes our place on the cross, enduring the punishment and the wrath of God, fully satisfying it, so that now, having been washed clean and having no imperfection in us, in the sight of God, he declares us his and he declares us holy. And at that approach, that that point of humility and weakness that is how god makes us able to take part in this covenant in this um to be worthy to take communion this is the function of communion we remember what jesus did for us taking the wrath of god the judgment that we deserved so that there would be no judgment that stands against us who have already been redeemed by him Nothing to separate us from our holy creator. Nothing to condemn us to death. Suffering and separation from his glory. When we think of communion, we should consider what was being celebrated. You know, when Jesus gave this instruction, what was being celebrated? Anybody? Passover, that's right. Passover was being celebrated when Jesus gave this instruction. What's the significance of that? Is there some significance of that? Well, Jesus doesn't do anything by accident. There are no coincidences. During Passover, now I always skip ahead when I do this, but during Passover, 
Come on in. During Passover, the Passover lamb was sacrificed. The, the, the Israelites are captive in Egypt. And God brings about the series of curses upon the land to reveal his glory, to bring judgment on the land, and to free his people. And one of the last ones that comes is, what, the death of the firstborn, right? And God says, my wrath is coming, and it's coming for everyone, because everyone is guilty. Everyone is guilty before me. But I will provide a satisfaction for my wrath, something to subdue and fulfill my wrath, and that is the lamb. This lamb, less than a year old, with no imperfections, you're going to kill it. You're going to eat it in the way that I say. Everyone's going to share it. Everybody in the household has to eat it. And then you're going to take the blood of the lamb and you're going to put it above your doorpost. It is the proclamation that God is our covering. He is the one that is protecting us. And then what? An angel of the Lord comes. The wrath of God comes and kills the firstborn of all who don't have the blood above the, Lord, above the doorpost. You know, that's what it means to be a believer with your trust in Jesus. Jesus' blood is above your doorpost. Jesus' blood is above your life, above all that you have ever done and all that you will ever do. His blood subdues, not subdues, fulfills the wrath of God, the just judgment that we deserve. And for that, God's wrath passes over us and brings us into communion with him and with each other. Does that make sense? When we think of communion, we should consider what was being celebrated. When Jesus made this new covenant with his disciples, all of that was taking place at Passover, where the Israelites were celebrating and remembering that God had delivered them from his wrath and the coming death of the firstborn in the land. God's wrath literally passed over everyone who by faith, that is, trusting God, sacrificed the lamb, ate it as instructed, and put the blood over their doorpost. So don't let the significance of what is being said be lost on you when Jesus says, this is my body broken for you. This is my blood, the new covenant. That is the promise that it would be God who would save us by his son. Jesus is the lamb. Anybody get excited about the idea of killing something, like killing a lamb? Specifically something so innocent and, and pure. Have you ever seen little lambs jump around before? Even when they get a little bit older, even when they're under a year, right? Like this, this, this imperfection, this, this uh, innocence that they have to them. And now you have to kill that lamb. Like, that's hard to take, right? What's even harder to take is the fact that the lamb is dying in your place. And so this is how we should look at Christ's sacrifice for us. He died in our place. He died in our place.
And this brought about the new covenant in his blood, his body broken, his blood shed, and placed over the lives of the people that would be redeemed. God would save us by his son. And we're not making a promise. We're receiving the promise. We're receiving this covenant, covenant promise, pretty closely tied together. It's not our promise to God. It's God's promise to us. That his son is sufficient for us. That he is going and has saved us. The blood of Jesus washes over our sin and causes the wrath of God to pass over us. So by partaking, we proclaim that Jesus died for us until he returns. Let me make something entirely clear, and I'll probably be jumping ahead again. But communion does not save you. Communion does not, eating some bread and drinking some wine or some juice doesn't save your soul. Jesus Christ alone saves your soul. It is by partaking of those things that we remember what Jesus did for us. Like baptism, right, which is a proclamation of what God did for us. It is an association with his death, burial, and resurrection. In the same way, we remember and we proclaim what Jesus did for us. And we reaffirm God's promise to us by partaking in communion. We say, I receive Jesus as my sacrifice. His forgiveness offered to my repentance. And he puts the blood over the doorpost of our lives. Verse 27. So then whoever eats the bread and drink, or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the blood, bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of what? What is it saying there? Without discerning the body of Christ. I'll give you a hint. It's talking about two things. Think about the context in which all of this is. Right? The body of Christ is another name for the church. It's another name for the church. But it's also representative of Christ's body and his sacrifice. So those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ eat and drink judgment on themselves. That is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep, which is another word for died. But if we were more discerning with regards to ourselves, notice how the tone changes, and Paul is bringing his own ownership into this. But if we were more discerning with regards to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not finally be condemned with the world. What Paul adds on to the end there is, is pretty significant, right? He's talking about this judgment, and, and we think like as death of being the final judgment. Death is not the final judgment. We have reference, like in Acts 4 or close to it thereof, of believers who died. 
as discipline and warning to others. This, like Ananias, right? They sell their property, they lie about it, and they fall instantly dead. They're judged right then. Does that mean that they somehow lost their salvation because of their sin? Well, Jesus died to cover their sin. But their death was judgment and warning to all of us how we should act with integrity towards, towards God. So the natural question that comes out of this passage, but we really need, really need to look at, is what is an unworthy manner? What does it mean? Well, the easy part is, is that Paul answers it in verse 29. Verse 29. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves, without considering the sacrifice and without considering the church, without considering God and his sacrifice and without considering the needs of the people around us, without loving other people. Which is the whole purpose in which we partake in communion regarding Christ and his sacrifice and coming together in unity as his people. Communion does not save. It is to remember how God saved us. We receive communion because we have been saved. Now, if you haven't made that decision, if you're, if you're still not in that place of, you know, I can confidently say that my trust is in Jesus, let it pass by. Let God take the time to work on your heart, but in that brief time, because time is brief, Seek God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. You will find him if you seek him with all of your heart, with integrity, with genuineness. And we know because we come before the Lord with this repentance, this, this humility, understanding that we're weak and that we're broken and that we're sinful. But we come to God because he's faithful. He keeps his promises. Those who come to him will be redeemed. We take hold of the truth and the promises he has for us. We trust him. That is what it means to have faith in God. That is what it means to have faith in Christ. And from there, God rejuvenates our hearts. He rejuvenates our souls Understanding we have this blessed life that's given to us, not by anything that we've done, but simply by God's grace, this free gift of grace that he gives us. In our sin and weakness, we came to God to save us. And we believe him for who he is and what he said he did. That is, he gave his son in our place so that we would be with him both now and forever. That is, receiving of the new covenant that he has given us. In the Old Testament, in the old times, there would be a covenant, this promise, right? Like God would say, I'm going to be your God and you're going to be my people. And you're going to obey what I've asked you to do. And I'm going to bless you and deliver you. And I'm going to save you. Be obedient to me. And God made a covenant with Abraham. That's one of the instances. Well, did Abraham take part in this covenant, really? 
No, Abraham falls like asleep into this kind of coma thing and the fire of God passes through the animals that are split. The animals split representing what happens to all of those who break the covenant. So God, like we saw in Genesis, he proves himself faithful over and over and over again. And the new covenant is in the same way. God proves himself faithful. And it's God's faithfulness that motivates us to obedience, not our obedience that earns his love in some way. Does that make sense? Our obedience doesn't earn God's love. God's love motivates our obedience. God is the one who brings us into his covenant. He's the one who secures his covenant. And he's the one who brings us through to salvation. So the people being corrected here in Corinth would know that their actions demonstrate that they have not understood what Christ did for them. Because the product shouldn't be self-preservation, but love towards each other as recipients of the same grace. The body of Christ is both the suffering and the death of Jesus and his church. And both are to be weighted against our hearts, both the sacrifice and that which was saved. We often apply this really only to our own sin and our rebellion against God. But I think it's most revealed, um, our sin a lot of times is most revealed in our sin against one another. So consider the body of Christ. Consider the church. Matthew 5, 21 through 24 is heavily convicting. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment, right? Wrong to murder people. God says so. Mm. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to the same judgment. Wow. Wow. Being angry and having hatred towards one another carries the same weight of judgment as what? Killing them. Yeah. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, anybody know what that means? Is it wrong to call somebody stupid? When you call somebody stupid or when you... Treat them as worthless. That's essentially what raka means. Kind of goes hand in hand with you fool. Anyone who says to a brother or sister stupid or worthless is answerable to the court. And anyone who says you fool will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar... And there remember that your brother or sister has something against you. Leave your gift there in front of the altar. Go first and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. Now, the altar of sacrifice is gone because Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice, right? But the attitude of the heart still remains in which we receive that that sacrifice, Now, this is in the Beatitudes, what I just read, and it certainly convicts me of my attitudes towards my brothers and sisters in Christ. None of us who partake of communion are worthy to receive it. But I'm sure when you you read that, it just pokes you right in the heart. We are not worthy. He makes us worthy. 
I encourage you to read Matthew 5, 6, and 7, which is the Beatitudes. That would be a really great thing to do this week. Um, And see what you come away with there. You know it's going to be fruitful. So Matthew 5, 6, and 7. So here we see, in in the totality of what we're reading, here we see that there are consequences for treating the new covenant with contempt and disregard for its cost. You can't just take your ticket of salvation and go. No, with reverence, consider the cost that Jesus paid for your life. Otherwise, God, who is a faithful father, is willing to give us the discipline that we need to come back to him. To steer us from sin to his loving arms. So if we need to lose fingers, really, if we need to lose fingers or our health, or we brought to weakness or die, He will do those things to steer us to him. He will do what is necessary to guide and to secure those who belong to him. It's better to lose an eye or a hand than to be separated from the father forever and be enduring his wrath. Right? That gives some understanding to that. But be clear, not all sickness is a result of personal sin. Death and sickness overall, though, are the curse of sinful flesh that we are guilty of, and that will be destroyed and be made new. Here we don't see an indication of the loss of salvation when this judgment or this discipline comes on these believers in Corinth. We see that weakness, sickness, and death are discipline designed to refine us. Wrap your mind around this. God disciplines the ones he loves. And those of you who have been disciplined by God can attest to that. Almost as if it's part of your testimony of of what he's done in your life. By his discipline, we know that he loves us. But if we disregard and take for granted the sacrifice which which made God's wrath pass over us, We can count him faithful to correct us. And do notice that all these conditions are all things that drive us to God. No one prays more, recognizes their need for God more than one who has lost their health. Or someone who's lost their strength. Or someone who is losing their life. Sickness and death show us our need for him. So here we're going to come to our final verse that directed the Corinthian church to correct their behavior towards one another. It says in verse 33, So then, my brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, you should all eat together. Anyone who is hungry should eat something at home, so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. And when I come, I will give further directions. Is he saying, you know, like, need to get full before you go there? So you can be like, oh, I'll just, I guess I'll just have a deviled egg, you know? Like, no, that's, that's, that's not what he's saying. He's saying, don't, like, eat to the detriment of others. Put yourself last so that others can be first. Share as we teach our children to share. You know, if, if, if hungry is going to be your excuse, then, then help take care of it before you get there so that the body, the common good, will be built up. 
Because of Christ, we have unity and equality as God's people. If we become hypocritical or selfish, we would not only damage our witness to the world, we would destroy each other. People who God loves. Let us take some time to reflect on Paul's instruction. We're going to prepare for communion as as the worship team comes up. And after today's Sunday school lesson, I don't know if we should keep calling them the worship team because worship is the entirety of our lives. But those who are going to lead us in song and in worship are going to come up. So, um, But let's take some time to reflect on Paul's worship. We're going to prepare for communion and what it means for us to consider Christ, his sacrifice that redeemed us, the forgiveness of all of our sin, a life that we were unworthy to receive, a punishment that we should have endured. And we consider his people as well. So as we prepare for communion, it's perfectly appropriate to take time and to stop and to be reconciled to those you have hurt or despised, to break down the walls and the divisions among us, and with humility and forgiveness, seek those people, all the while considering what Christ did for for us, even while we still hated him. But overall, to take part in communion as a member of the body of Christ. Remember your Passover lamb, your savior, your God, Jesus Christ, who by faith you have received the grace of God and so by God's mercy and grace you receive communion. Not on your merits or goodness, but as redeemed people who by the blood of Christ have had your filthy rags washed whiter than snow. So now you have relationship with your holy creator.